Hello, friends. Welcome, welcome. So glad you're here to join me. My friend Caben Kramer is here today. Caben and his wife own a walnut farm. And if that was not interesting enough, I have a fantastic story about a woman that I find so inspirational. She's one of my favorites. I got to share all of the details with Caben, and by the end of the episode, he loved her too. So let's dive into this episode called 1100 Strongly Worded Letters. I'm Sharon McMahon, and welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am here today with my friend, Caden Kramer. And why don't you tell everybody what you do? Because your job is very interesting to me. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm a walnut farmer in Northern California. So I get to hang out with a bunch of trees all day and take care of some <laughs> soil and some chickens and let the sun and the soil do its thing. I think, I mean, you're so used to thinking about farmers being like, we grow corn. These are my cucumbers. And how many walnut farmers are there? Walnut trees grow slowly. They grow very slowly. But where I farm is kind of like Champagne from France. That's kind of the area of California I'm in for walnuts. I mean, it is the walnut capital of the world. 99% of America's walnuts come from probably within 100 miles of where I am. Wow. Yeah. And about half of the world's walnuts, I think. I could be wrong. Someone smarter than me will fact check that and let you know. (laughs) How long does a walnut tree have to grow before it starts producing walnuts? Typically about seven years. So when you put it in the ground, it'll start dropping walnuts maybe in its fourth year, fifth year, but you can't really harvest anything off of it till about the seventh year, the tree needs to get strong enough and get enough produce. So that means also we only harvest once a year in October. So we are harvesting our property, but when you start farming, you only harvest once a year, you only get paid once a year. Mm. So you have to farm for 15 months before we got our first paycheck. That is significant. People do not take their food producers seriously enough and give them enough credit. We just assume we can go to the grocery store and buy some walnuts, which we can, Mm -hmm. but there's not enough admiration for like, I had to do this for 15 months before I got one paycheck and my paycheck is largely tied to mother nature. It is. We don't know what our paycheck is until it comes in. So we've spent a year growing the crop. We have shipped the crop off and then we have to wait four more months before we even know how much we're going to make on that crop. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. No, this episode is not about walnut farming, but I could make it into one because I'm interested. But how does one even get into walnut farming? It's not like land in California to plant a walnut grove is inexpensive. Like, How do you even do that? Yeah, but honestly, it is very expensive. If I were to go in cold turkey, I would need four to $5 million in startup just for land and equipment. And then you wouldn't even harvest your first crop for seven years. So mm-hmm. in our story, it's family. I'm the fourth generation of my family on this land. And so that's given me access to something that very few people have access to. And I don't take that for granted, not for a day of my life. I wake up every day, thankful for the honor of being able to step into the work that my father has done. And what are the best parts of being a walnut farmer. The best part of being a farmer is learning how to settle into the grace of the trees. That's beautiful. How old are the trees on your property? I would imagine there's planting and things like that as trees fall, but what's the average tree age? Yeah, I'd say the average tree age is about 25 years old, but we are planting new trees every year and we're taking out our oldest trees. So our oldest trees are 64 years old. Okay. And so we're taking those out, putting new trees in, but yeah, the average age is probably somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. I have said this many times that I'm fascinated by other people's jobs. I'm never going to be a walnut farmer, but I really enjoy hearing about other people's experiences doing that. Yeah. And you know, my wife and I just escaped to Napa Valley for a couple of days. And I was reminded that people really enjoy just being out in the vineyards. Mm -hmm. And my takeaway was, I feel like my orchard almost brings more serenity than these vineyards because you get all the shade. We have about 90% shade out in the summer, which is just a delight to walk around and let your mind wander, let your thoughts wander. It's a beautiful place. We're very Mm -hmm. thankful. Have you ever thought about opening a small country inn? Give me a few years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be my heart's desire would be to allow the gift of generations has been given to me to be shared more with the public. Yeah. And there would need to be like a walnut muffin. (laughs) Yes. Yes, definitely. Great. Thank you for coming on my podcast. (laughs) It has been nice chatting. (laughs) No, I have many walnut ideas for you. So wonderful. (laughs) Okay. The other thing too, is that you don't just 
how does one sell walnuts? It's not like you're just sitting at your roadside stand. Yeah. So we have what's called a commodity buyer. So they buy millions and millions of pounds of walnuts from all different growers. So we're just small potatoes to them. And then they export all over the world, Italy, China, Brazil, some stays in the domestic market here in the US, but about 90% of our crop ends up overseas. The trick with that, of course, is the unpredictability of it, because we do all this work without knowing what we're going to get, which is why we started doing the direct consumer over Mm -hmm. Instagram with the spread walnuts, because that's a much more consistent market, um, Mm -hmm. even if it's still a small market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so people want to know this too. What are sprouted walnuts? <laughs> uh, the, the elevator pitches, sprouted walnut does two things. It releases bound up nutrition in the nut because it thinks it's going to start a new plant. So it says, oh, all this good stuff that's going to start a plant. We need to let go of it so we can actually start this plant. And then it also breaks down the protective barrier around the nut so it can start pushing roots. Well, Mm -hmm. so we allow that biochemical process to start, but we stop it before the nut actually changes shape. What that does is it creates a bioavailable superfood where your body can actually absorb a higher percentage of the nutrition of the nut and mm-hmm. the flavor tastes better because there's not all those bitter acids and tannins on the outside of the nut protecting it from the soil. I know when you sent me some of your sprouted walnuts, I had no idea what to expect because I've never had a sprouted walnut before. And I did notice how mild they mm-hmm. taste. Mm-hmm. They're very, you know how cashews are very mild flavored yes. nut. They don't taste like cashews, but they're similar to a cashew in that it does not have that bitter walnut aftertaste that you associate with walnuts. Definitely. Okay. All right. Enough about walnuts. We will head back in time to 1744. Oh, that's way back in time. It is way back in time to the actual birth date of this individual is in question. I should clarify. It's not in question. It's just, which number do we report? Prior to the 1750s, colonists in the United States and also residents of Britain used the Julian calendar and not the Gregorian calendar, which we have now. And as it turned out, the Julian calendar was not the most accurate in terms of the rotations around the sun, things like that. It was off. And so when they actually made the switch to the Gregorian calendar, it changed people's birthdays by like 11 days. (laughs) Imagine a situation like that today, right? Where they're like, listen, guys, the way we've been doing things for centuries has been wrong. We're going to correct it. We're going to make it right. But y'all's birthdays are going to be altered by 11 days. It's going to be 11 day (laughs) difference. Would Americans take kindly to that, do you think? Oh, man, the social media <laughs> lash back on that. Wow. You just aged me 11 days? <laughs> That's right. People would not be into it. 
all of those 20 year olds on the cusp of drinking might be really excited. <laughs> Everyone else yeah. is going to be livid. It's funny to me to sometimes think about history, take those events that happened and like transpose them into today and think about what would it be like if our government was like, we're changing the calendar. What would people say today? Like people would not look kindly on it. No. So this individual was born in November of 1744 in the beautiful and historic state of Massachusetts. Mm. And she was educated at home, you know, kind of like a lot of girls didn't go to school, but her mother was well-read and her mother taught her how to read her and her siblings and how to write. And her father was a very well-respected member of the community. He was a congregationalist minister. Mm. And in the colonies at that time, Truly, the highest status one could have was being the minister, you know, and there were obviously various congregations, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Unitarian, you know, etc. But that was a very elevated status, so much so that some professions that we think are very high status today, things like physician, lawyer, etc., those were well beneath the status of minister. You went to Harvard and learned how to become a minister. Anyway, she learned how to read and her father had all of these books. And so even though she never attended school formally, she had access to this huge library because he was such a well-respected person. He was constantly getting new books from people and visitors to their home would introduce her to different authors. And so she became very well-known as a voracious reader and later a fantastic writer. In fact, one of the best letter writers of all time, historians regard her as, which is saying something. A woman born in the mid 1700s is considered by historians one of the best letter writers of all time. Mm. And when she was a teenager, she met a man that struck her fancy. And he saw her across the room and she saw him and they had stars in their eyes. She was this very tiny little woman who had dark hair and dark eyes and was like five feet tall, which wasn't unusual for women of the time, of course, but you know, she was just very petite and her parents were not sure about him because he was just a country lawyer. And they were like, his manners are not appropriate. He is very country. He acts like he just came off the farm. And I am not sure about his prospects as an attorney. I don't know if he's going to be able to take care of you as an attorney. And so they made them wait a couple of years before getting married because her parents could not be convinced that he was going to be able to care for her. Hmm. And when she was 19, they finally got married. He was about nine years older than her. And just a few days short of their nine-month wedding anniversary, she gave birth to their first child, who she named after her herself. And again, this was a girl child. And this was not an unusual thing to do at the time. Today, we have this tradition of we only name male children after their father, but they named their first daughter, Abigail Adams. Oh, after herself. So the Adams began having children. They named their daughter, Abigail. Her nickname was Nabby. Nabby instead of Abby. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not sure where Nabby came from, but that was her name her entire life. And they went on to have another famous child named John Quincy. Wow. Right? John Quincy, by the way, was the name of Abigail Adams's grandfather. And her grandfather was the speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly for 40 years. Wow. So she was raised in a political household mm-hmm. where her grandfather had a pretty significant influence on her allowed her mother to have an interest in politics and by extension, Abigail to have an interest in politics. So they had Nabby and then John Quincy. And then they had a daughter named Susanna who died before she turned two. Mm. And they had a son named Charles, a son named Thomas and a daughter named Elizabeth who was stillborn. So four of the six Adams children lived to adulthood. And Abigail is truly one of the most fascinating women in U.S. history to me. More interesting than her actual achievements. You know what I mean? Like as an Enneagram 3, I love achievements. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she doesn't have achievements where it's like, and then Abigail Adams invented the electricity. You know what I mean? She doesn't have that. And yet this arc of her story is 
just so interesting. So John Adams, of course, gets real involved in revolutionary politics. They had been living on a farm and they moved to Boston so that he could be closer to his law practice. He was deep in revolutionary politics Mm. and she supported the revolution. She wanted there to be independence. And John and Abigail had a very interesting sort of symbiotic relationship where he absolutely regarded her advice and counsel as incredibly important. As a product of his time, he definitely viewed women's role as being in the home, but it was Abigail that he wrote letters to asking for advice. Mm -hmm. And over the course of their marriage, John and Abigail exchanged over 1,100 letters. Wow. The vast majority of which are intact, preserved. And so we have this firsthand account of what it is like on the home front during the Revolutionary War, where Mm -hmm. she is just at the time, a mother trying to care for her children left while her husband is dealing with his politics or her husband is overseas, et cetera. And also what it was like being the wife of the vice president, because John Adams was George Washington's vice president. And then what it is like to be one of the first ladies of the United States. So her prolific writing is an incredible treasure trove of information to historians. So John would leave Abigail for long periods of time. He had to go to Philadelphia, to go to New York, go do this thing, go decide, do we write a declaration of independence? How do we handle this? How do we get out of this situation? We don't want to be your subjects anymore. How do we extricate ourselves from this? I also love that both of the Adamses were very anti-slavery and that was not always a popular thing to openly talk about. A lot of the quote unquote founding fathers of the United States might have been against it. You know, some of them were, some of them owned slaves, but the ones who were against it still made a lot of compromises surrounding it. They allowed it to continue for a long period of time. And I love what Abigail Adams had to say in a letter where she said, I doubt very much that the Virginians have such a passion for liberty as they claim they do, since they deprive their fellow creatures of freedom. And I was like, "Mm." Mm. she had a lot of opinions for a woman her age. One day when she was, she wrote a letter to John, and this is one of her most famous letters, where she is encouraging John to remember women. Like Mm. when you are writing your laws, she has this very famous phrase called, remember the ladies. And she says in this letter to John, remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. And she also goes on to say, listen, if you don't pay attention, women are going to foment a rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, women are determined to foment a rebellion. And I love this too. And we will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Oh, I love that. Like we're not going to listen to you. If you are not going to listen to our concerns, we're not going to listen to yours. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We've all had those embarrassing moments where maybe you've taken your shoes off and you realize like, oh no, oh no, that is not a good smell. Fortunately, Lumi Whole Body Deodorant is making it so None of us ever have to worry about that again. Unlike certain other products, 
Lumi is powered by mandelic acid to control odor in a new way. It delivers outrageous 72-hour odor control everywhere one might like to use it. In fact, it was patients' concerns about odor that originally inspired the OBGYN who invented Lumi. Fast forward six years and her game-changing whole-body deodorant now has over 300,000 five-star reviews. And it works without using heavy perfumes that mask odor, which I really appreciate. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, which is my favorite, and two free products of your choice, like deodorant wipes or a mini body wash. It also has free shipping. And as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that's like 40% off their starter pack. So use code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That's L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. Mother's Day is almost here. And I want to take just a quick second to appreciate not only my mom, all the moms out there, but anyone who has taken on the role of caregiver. You do everything for someone else. And now it's time to do something for yourself. And that includes starting with your skin. And I've been using our sponsor One Skin's products for a while now. And I have to tell you, I am really enjoying them. They are very easy to incorporate into my skincare routine. I am really liking the eye cream. And the secret is One Skin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It is the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And they have several studies to back it up. One Skin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, One Skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SHARON at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SHARON. And after your purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support this show and tell them we sent you. So while the Revolutionary War was going on, many of the battles, like the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and several other very important battles happened not far from where the Adamses lived. And of course, John is not home. It's just Abigail at home with their four children. And she made a reputation for herself that she would allow soldiers who were maybe had escaped from British captivity or who were trying to evade capture, they could come and hide at their house. And at one point she took all of her beloved silverware which was at the time made of pewter and melted it all down to make musket balls to pass out to all of the soldiers of like, you guys have got to win this thing. You know, like what you need is ammunition, which I just love that. She's also very famous for making the decision, which was again, extremely controversial at the time to inoculate her children against smallpox. Smallpox was a very significant problem during the time of the revolutionary war. And once it kind of came to your community, the community just was like gripped with fear. It had a very, very high mortality rate. She is like a get it done DIY. amazing woman. She's like, Hey, this has got to get done. It's incredible. I'm going to do what I have to do here. One of her children did get very sick from the inoculation, but lived, you know, that's one of the things about using that method. It's called variolation of trying to inoculate yourself against a disease is that it's very imprecise, right? Like you don't know what is the correct dosage. Like she was taking the chance of, I think it's safer to do this than to let my kids get a full case of smallpox. Of course, that allowed her four children to continue living to adulthood. She'd already experienced the death of two kids and probably was not interested in doing that again. Mm -hmm. So John 
makes a name for himself in the United States government. And they send him overseas. They say, listen, you are going to be the minister to France. And he had been gone for a while. And eventually, Abigail just missed him too much. They were very fond of one another. And they were very affectionate with each other. And he would sometimes refer to her in their letters as Miss Adorable. Which I thought was so cute. Like, this is a 45-year-old woman. (laughs) You know what I mean? Who doesn't have the trappings of modern beauty standards. You miss adorable. So she eventually decides, I'm going to join you. I'm going to join you in Europe. John served as one of the ministers to France, and then he was later reassigned to go to Britain. And it was while they were in France, the Adamses, that... Abigail had a chance to meet Benjamin Franklin, who she was not fond of, (laughs) and to meet Thomas Jefferson, who she was very fond of. And they became very close friends. And one of the things that they bonded over was their love of gardens and their love of songbirds. And Thomas Jefferson later told James Madison about his fondness for Abigail Adams. Like I have never met anyone like her. There's just something about her company that I enjoy so much. And they would exchange gifts with each other and became pen pals for years. The friendship between them was very close. So of course, later when Thomas Jefferson beat John Adams in the election of 1800, that really soured their friendship. And that was a source of sadness for Abigail that she lost that friendship with Thomas Jefferson and that John Adams lost his friendship with him as well. So during this time that the Adamses are in Europe is when the constitution was being written. Okay. John Adams was not in the country during this time period. They were in Europe from like 1784 to 1789. The constitution was written in 1787. So they finally came home when George Washington became president And John Adams was voted vice president. So I guess we'll go home if you're going to be vice president then. I mean, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. So they traveled home. Adams was vice president for both of George Washington's terms. And it was a job that he hated. He Mm. hated being vice president because he felt like this job is so boring. (laughs) This job is nothing. At the time, the vice president had almost no constitutional obligation other than to cast tie-breaking votes for Congress. That was all Mm. they were supposed to do, like be a placeholder in case something happens to the president. Now, all of our jobs that we assign to the vice president, that's not by law. That's just mutually agreed upon by the president and vice president. The job can be whatever they decide it will be. And as a brand new vice president, the first vice president ever, they had not come up with anything interesting. And he wrote in a letter to Abigail once, like, I cannot imagine a worse job than this one. <laughs> like He absolutely <laughs> hated it. He was a man of great intellect and it was boring. And there's nothing worse than just being bored at work, right? Right, 100%. (laughs) Constantly bored at work while people watch (laughs) you being bored. (laughs) So they, of course, at the time, the capital of the United States was in Philadelphia. And so they traveled back and forth, especially Abigail, who was trying to take care of things back home in Massachusetts. And she'd come to Philadelphia to see John, et cetera. And there was a very notable incident that happened in 1791. So John Adams was vice president from 1789 to 1797. So in 1791, during George Washington's first term, a young black man came to their door and said, will you teach me how to read and write? Mm -hmm. And she said, absolutely. Come on in. And she invited him into their house every day to teach him how to read and write and got him to the point. I don't know his precise age, but I would assume 12 to 15 ish. And once he got up to a certain speed of learning how to read, like a certain level of proficiency, she took him to the school to enroll him and was like, you can do the work now because you've learned how to read. And the neighbors and some of the people at the school were like, No, you can't Mm. just have differently colored children 
attending the school. And Abigail Adams famously said that this is a free man as much as any of the other young men. And merely because his face is black, is he to be denied instruction? How is he to be qualified to procure a livelihood? And then she said, I have not thought it any disgrace to take myself to take him into my home and teach Mm -hmm. him how to read and write. This is the wife of the vice president giving these people kind of a verbal tongue lashing of like, I invited him to my house and there is no reason you should not welcome him into your school. And they did, they dropped it and they did. And he was attended the school. So of course we all know that John Adams eventually became the president and they had to move to Philadelphia more full-time. They had to live at the president's house. And at the time, it was up to the president to pay for all of the entertaining they had to do. Mm. If you were going to have all the dinners and all the special events and the Christmas parties and whatever, it was up to the president to pay for that. And the Adamses were frugal people. They were not ostentatious people. They, you know, owned a farm and they had come from more humble beginnings. But while John had been away overseas, Abigail Adams had invested a bunch of the money that they had, and those investments began to pay off. And she invested their money wisely enough so that it lasted them the entirety of John's life. John outlived her by quite a few years. He lived a very long life. He lived to be in his 90s. And the money that Abigail made from her investments again, without really consulting Jen, (laughs) lasted them the rest of their life. They spent it carefully, but they were frugal. They still kept it a little bit more simple. And one of the things they had to do as president and first lady, they didn't really refer to the wife of the president as first lady at the time, but that's what, of course, we know her as. They had an audience with the public every day. So every day the public would come over to your house for two hours a day. You had two hours a day of just conversing with people who showed up, which that doesn't that seem ridiculous today that you could just yes, go wait in I, line outside the White House and be like, well, I'm talking. Today. I feel like somehow that was a carryover from the monarchy of like holding court. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And somehow that was still in the evolution of what a democracy is, this digital tale that came over from the monarchies. <laughs> Probably. I mean, even all the way up through Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was doing that too. Just like letting people come over to the white house. And now we're like, stay away from the president. (laughs) Right? Like that's our current position. Like get away. Yeah. And of course there are legitimate security reasons for that. But now it's like, man, you couldn't get within 20 feet of the president without an express invitation if you wanted to. Right. But I also, again, as an introvert, the idea that people have to come over to my house (laughs) two hours a day (laughs) and I have to talk to you. Oh, no. (laughs) She was so well-informed about political issues that people of the day referred to her as Mrs. President. Amazing. Sometimes people, if they wanted to send a message to John, they would send it to her first because Mm. she was the more emotionally stable one in the Mm. relationship. Mm. She was much more pragmatic and he was much more hot tempered. He constantly apologized in letters to Abigail, like, please forgive my vanity. (laughs) You know, like his feelings were so easily injured and she was just more like, John, stop acting that way. You know, like you can't do that. There were several times where Abigail would leak information to the press in order to get a favorable story about her husband out there in the newspaper. This is also something that a lot of Americans don't realize is that we do not have a long history of an impartial or unbiased press. It used to be that during this time period, newspapers, etc., were entirely partisan. And you bought the newspaper that aligned with your viewpoints. Either you hated the Adams administration or you were a federalist and you loved it. And you bought the newspaper that aligned with your viewpoint. And are things very polarized now? Absolutely. Were they polarized then? Also, yes. (laughs) It's just a lot more easy for things to go viral now. Mm. Clearly. 
Hi, friends. It's Sharon. If you enjoyed a recent episode with author and public theologian Issa Macaulay, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you. No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor is an acclaimed podcast series that explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host and award-winning theologian Lee C. Camp brings you thoughtful conversations with artists, philosophers, politicians, and theologians like Hollywood legend Rob Reiner and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson about what it means to find true happiness and flourish in our everyday life. So don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And tell them I sent you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the Adamses were the first people to live in the White House. Wow when they moved the capital to Washington, D.C. And as I mentioned, the election of 1800 was very contentious. Thomas Jefferson beat John Adams. And several days before that election, the Adams's son, Charles, died of alcoholism. That hit them so hard. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he had made so many poor life choices. He had a wife and many children and he had gambled a lot of his money away. He had stolen money from his brother, John Quincy and lost it. The fact that Charles had kind of gone off the rails was a source of tremendous heartache for the Adamses. And then to have him die and leave his wife and children alone was also just tremendously heartbreaking for them. And then add in this massive election defeat, this incredible amount of contentiousness. And then the fact that they're supposed to get up and move to Washington, DC to the white house and act like everything's fine. Because of course the election happened at the end of the year, but at the time presidents didn't take office until March. So they were going to be moving to the white house just for a few months. And they got to the white house And Abigail was very dismayed to find, it was unfinished, by the way, they were still working on it, very dismayed to find that much of the White House was being constructed by slaves. And she was like, how am I supposed to live here in this, where even are we? At the time, Washington, D.C. was literally in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It was not a city. It was not close to anything. It was kind of swampy. There were a lot of trees. And... Here she is. Her son has just died. She's supposed to move into this unfinished house that is being built under conditions that she finds morally objectionable. And there's no heat in the house. Like it was very poorly insulated. And she just remembers as that winter as being like one of the coldest and darkest times of her life. She famously was like, oh, and what's this giant room over here for? Because the house was unfinished. She put up a bunch of clotheslines and hung up their wash. There are paintings of Abigail Adams hanging her laundry in the East Room of the White House that are part of like the First Lady's collection at the White House. Her doing that It wasn't a symbol of disrespect per se. It was pragmatic. Like the laundry needs to dry. Mm. You know, Washington DC is very rainy in the wintertime, but yet it does illustrate how just a little bit of how unhappy they had to have been living there during that time period. So eventually they, John left office and they moved much more happily back to their farm in Massachusetts. And sadly, their daughter, Nabby died of breast cancer. 
Oh no. She had like three years of horrible pain. She had an operation where they attempted to like remove the tumor and there was no anesthetic at the time. And she had this mm. operation at her parents' house where the doctor came over and they literally, I mean, she consented to it, but they literally had to give her a rag to bite on and like oh tie her arms up. So she oh wouldn't like inter try to interfere involuntarily. And the Adams is described later about like listening to the sound of her, like this muffled screams coming from mm. upstairs while they were trying to do this surgery, but she had children. She had multiple children that she was trying to stay alive for and a deadbeat husband. Oh man. Anyway, she ended up dying. Did, did they know at the time it was called cancer or what did they call it then? They okay. did know it was called cancer, but cancer was very taboo. So you would never come to people and be like, listen, guys, I have cancer. In fact, you would try to keep that diagnosis from the person who had cancer, because there was this idea that you shield people from the truth because they can't handle it, particularly women. Right. Mm. And their daughter, Nabby was like, I know something is not right. And she could tell when it, the tumor grew back. She was mm. like, it's back. So it was viewed at the time as contagious or it was viewed as something that happened to people of poor moral character. Mm. And so it wasn't really until later in the 1800s that it was the treatment of cancer began to become more socially acceptable. Have you watched The Crown? No, I haven't. Okay, well, you should watch it. But there's a scene okay. in which Queen Elizabeth's father has lung cancer. Nobody wants to tell him. And he has secret surgery at Buckingham Palace to remove one of his lungs. Whoa. But nobody tells him it's cancer. You know, like that persisted until the 20th century, that wow. it was not socially acceptable to tell people that was like happening to you for whatever reason. It had these misguided beliefs about it because they didn't understand how science worked. But then yeah. there were all these stigmas attached to it from all of their centuries of misguided beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Anyway, all of that to say, Abigail Adams, absolutely, like as her children grew, she took in other people's children. They raised mm. her son, Charles's children. They raised her daughter, Nabby's children. Her brother-in-law had children who needed raising. They were constantly, in fact, for a period of time back when they lived overseas, she helped raise one of Thomas Jefferson's children, his daughter who later passed away. And that was part of what rekindled Thomas Jefferson's friendship with the Adamses was when Abigail sent him a letter of condolence saying, I'm sorry about the loss of your daughter. Anyway, she never stopped taking care of other people's children. She loved dogs, constantly had a dog at her side and would write about her dogs frequently in letters to people, mm. constantly talking about her dog, Juno. Juno is old and gray like I am now, but Juno still lives. You know, like obviously so very important to her. Yeah. And Abigail Adams is one of only two women in the world, in world history, that has been both a wife to a president and the mother to a president. Wow. Because, of course, John Quincy, her son, became president eventually. Yeah. And she did not live to see his presidency. But she and Barbara Bush are the only go. two people wow. who can say they've ever been a mother and a wife to a president. I think that's a cute connection between them. That's amazing. And this is one thing that a historian said about her. He says their correspondence constitutes a treasure trove of unexpected intimacy and candor, more mm. revealing than any other correspondence between a prominent American husband and wife in U.S. history. And although she was self-educated, she was a better and more colorful letter writer than John, even mm. though John was one of the best letter writers of the age. Mm. And he says she was more resilient, more emotionally balanced, and one of the most extraordinary women in American history. And I loved what she had to say in one of her letters to one of her friends, when her friend wrote her a letter after John had been elected president, her friend Mercy wrote her a letter and was like, congratulations on making it, <laughs> you know, like uh, yeah. you are now like the most esteemed woman in the country. Congratulations. And Abigail wrote back to her and said, I shall esteem myself peculiarly fortunate 
if at the close of my life, I can retire esteemed, beloved, and equally respected with my predecessors. I just love that. That was what was important to her. Not like my giant list of accomplishments, not all of my inventions, not all of my awards. I want to retire esteemed, beloved, and respected. Wow. And she is. And she is. And I just think she's fantastic. You've completely convinced me. I mean, I'm sitting here (laughs) listening to this and I question now whether John Adams could have even risen to his station without a woman Mm -hmm. like her. The way that she would stand up against slavery when it wasn't cool, the way that she led John in esteeming her opinion and seeking her advice, the way she took in children, the way she had compassion. Her last words were reported to be to John because she died in her seventies. John outlived her by a number of years. She said, do not grieve my friend, my dearest friend. I'm ready to go. And John, it will not be long. Oh, so beautiful. Such a sweet love story they had. Mm -hmm. You hear about all of the exploits of many of our founders. She, by the way, hated Alexander Hamilton because (laughs) she was like, his eyes are from the devil. And I looked into his eyes and all I saw was lasciviousness. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, she had no love for Alexander Hamilton. You hear about the exploits of Alexander Hamilton, the Reynolds pamphlet, and all of his affairs. And you hear about all of the slaves that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson owned, James Madison. And here are the Adamses who are not as flashy, mm-hmm. who John Adams made a lot of people mad because <laughs> he was not very diplomatic mm-hmm. and he was prone to fits of temper. But I absolutely admire their commitment to each other, their commitment mm-hmm. to their principles, even though it cost him the presidency because he was unpopular, it cost him his position. Ultimately, he was happier for having lost that election. Their life was happier for not having to continue living in Washington, D.C., continue that life of public service. They were happier as a retired couple. Yeah, that's wonderful. You hardly see that anymore. It's a big deal for a couple to stay devoted to one another for that many Mm -hmm. years. To write 1,100 letters by hand with a quill and (laughs) mail it. (laughs) You know what I mean? I just have to admire their commitment to each other. That's what I'm trying to say. That's amazing. Okay. Can I ask a couple of questions? Cause I'm just so curious about things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they weren't around for the writing of the constitution Mm -hmm. and yet they came back to be vice president. Were they just completely bought into the constitution or did they get back and they started reading this thing and they're like, hang on, we're going to be leading a country that does what now? (laughs) John Adams was an advisor to some of the writers of the constitution. They exchanged letters where he was like, be sure to do X. Mm. So he was a very big advocate. He and Alexander Hamilton were the leaders of the Federalist Party. And so he was a very big advocate for a strong central government. He Mm. absolutely believed that we needed to ditch the Articles of Confederation, which had no strong central government, and move to a situation where a strong central government existed. So he was a supporter. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then the White House, did it get finished in Jefferson's term or when was it actually done? Yes, it became finished during Jefferson's term. He moved into the White House directly, obviously, when he took office in March. Thomas Jefferson's wife died like 17 years before he became president. Mm. So Thomas Jefferson did not have a first lady the way other people had. And so his daughter-in-law helped him, you know, hold the parties and do the hosting and do all of the things. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then the vice president lives on Naval base. Naval observatory. Naval Mm -hmm. observatory. Mm -hmm. Were the Adams there? Nope. The Naval observatory was not built until considerably later. And do you know where people stayed in the interim while all this stuff was being finished? Taverns. (laughs) Yes. Like actual taverns. I love how the world could be such a simple place when we choose for it to be like, (laughs) oh, yes, you running the free country of the United States of America. Come sleep in the upstairs of my tavern and listen to the rowdy beer drinking downstairs. (laughs) Exactly. You know, a lot of taverns at the time had three or four rooms above the tavern. People who were traveling, people who were too intoxicated to go home. You could just rent a room up there, but they literally stayed in a tavern. And it was often not an appropriate place for women to stay. So a man traveling alone or whatever would stay at a tavern and they did. Mm. 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> so yes, before Abigail joined John at the White House, before the White House was ready, like while they were making that transition, John stayed in a tavern. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. My, my last question about her, although I have many, her relationship to slavery. Obviously, we can look back and say, wow, she was very much against this. Did she have any sway in what the nation was doing at the time? Well, she certainly had sway in terms of encouraging John to continue to vocally oppose it Mm -hmm. and to try to encourage him to not compromise his beliefs on that matter. So, of Mm -hmm. course, there are compromises in the constitution in relationship to slavery. But again, the Adamses were not in the country when the constitution was being written. And so it's unclear to what extent they were able to impact what was written in the actual constitution. But she was certainly very vocal in her church community and in her social circles about slavery. That said, she had relationships, friendships with people like Thomas Jefferson, who openly owned slaves. And so it is one of those things that's kind of like, how do we reconcile somebody who's doing something that you find morally reprehensible Mm -hmm. and wanting to maintain a relationship with them? Yeah, That is a question we still struggle with as humans today. We do. Yeah. We struggle with that tension of what does it mean to be present in community and advocate for a better world. It's tough. I love that oh. though, that she was like, maybe these Virginians aren't, <laughs> as, aren't as much a lover of liberty as they would make themselves out to be. Man, she would wear that sass crown proud <laughs> if she was around today. I'll tell you what, I wish she was. Thank you, you for telling me her story. That's yes. amazing. Wow. Okay. Tell everybody how to find you and how to buy your sprouted walnuts. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we are on Instagram at Tenderly Rooted. And we're also online, www.tenderlyrooted.com. It's all one word, Tenderly Rooted. Mm. And we're really excited right now because of course we're heading into harvest, but we're also heading into holidays. Mm. So we've got these amazing holiday exclusive infusions coming out November 1st, Mm. coming in a gift box. And they are incredible flavors. Yeah, we've got gingerbread and holiday spice and coffee liqueur. Mm. And all of them we're doing ourselves. We're doing our own cinnamon extracts, vanilla extracts, and then we're mixing it. Oh my goodness, Sharon, these Mm. flavors are so good. Mm. So we're really excited to share that with the world. You can find us online. And then November 1st, the gift box comes and limited supplies, of course, because we're doing it all by hand, handcrafting Mm. them just for you guys. But we're very excited. What a great idea, too, to put those out on like a holiday cheese board. Yes. You know what I mean? Oh like goodness, where you need yes. like a goat cheese and then you have need like the sweetness of like a mm-hmm. cinnamon walnut. Oh, that sounds so. very delicious. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> I yeah. Uh, enjoy eating in case that was unclear. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. I cannot wait to have another mind blown moment with you next episode. Thanks again for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast.